This is Island Waves. You're listening to Something to Talk About, a series on everyday people and giving them a voice into their lives. Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward. This is Island Waves, and you're listening to Something to Talk About. I'm Virginia Winter, and we have the pleasure in talking with Mr. Glenn Gilkey. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and will follow his journey through the South all the way back up north to Kamloops, B.C. Author, playwright, director, husband, father, and champion activist to many social causes, including homelessness, food insecurities, mental wellness, and civic activism. We're here today talking with an old friend, Glenn Hilke, who started out in Brooklyn, New York, and journeyed his way through the South, or to the South, and then back up to the North Pole again. How are you doing this evening? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you, Virginia. I'm looking forward to uh, having this nice, long, lifelong kind of conversation with you. Well, good. I am, too. Revisiting some uh, old stomping grounds that we, where we met, actually, in Atlanta, Georgia. But as I said, starting earlier, you were born in Brooklyn, New York. You grew up in Brooklyn. That's right. Yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn in... Um, you know, I think Brooklyn is always uh, a place that it goes through cycles of development, uh, cultural change, and uh, and turmoil. And I was, you know, my um, my teen years, leading right up to my very very early twenties, was the time that I was living in Brooklyn. It, you know, I, I grew up in a working class family. I'm the first person in my family to graduate high school. The neighborhood that I spent my first 13 years in was a very multicultural neighborhood and was becoming more so when I got into my teen years. But unfortunately for my family, uh, my parents in particular, they were under a lot of pressure by their peers uh, to leave a neighborhood that was becoming more and more multicultural. And the pressure came from you know, their friends that they grew up with, uh, a lot of them were veterans of World War II. And these were people who actually lived in the neighborhood where my parents were both born and grew up. And so at the age of 13, when I finished elementary school, we moved from that multicultural neighborhood to the actual street that uh, one of my parents was born on and raised in. And it was quite a shock for me to move into an all-white Western European neighborhood of Germans, Italians, uh, Irish predominantly. And it was a neighborhood that was, was rife with alcoholism and racism. And it was real struggle for me um, to find a way to establish new friendships that were with people who had a different mindset than what I was used to in the elementary school years. Well, that would have been a shock. Did, so were you in a urban setting and then you moved to the Burbs? I, I'm, I'm pretty familiar no, with No, no, not at all. I, I okay. literally moved from one side of Prospect Park in Brooklyn, which is Prospect Park is like the equivalent of Central Park in New York City in Manhattan. 
uh, move from one side of Prospect Park to the other side of Prospect Park. But, you know, it's, it's, it's typical of Brooklyn, like Brooklyn neighborhoods still to this day, but, but I would say less racially and socioeconomically. Neighborhoods were quite uh, segregated. It was the neighborhood that I moved into when I turned 13, like I said, was a completely dominant Western European white neighborhood. And the one I grew up in, in the, in the first 12 years of my life, there were many more immigrants from the African-American community, the Caribbean community, and, the, uh, and, and basically the Puerto Rican community. So how did that make you feel? I mean, was that uh, that must have been a lot of pressure for you to have to adapt to such a, a drastic change in your in in the way you were living in your surroundings? And did you sort of resent your parents for it? Did you push back? No, I mean, you know, the, the, the challenge is, you know, you're 13 years old and all of a sudden you've got to find a new set of friends and you don't want to be without friends. And so you kind of have to navigate your way into this new uh this new tribe so to speak with all of its you know good points and bad points so you know the good points were i would say more so the level of sports and the number uh, yeah the level of sports participation and there were of course you know back in those days you know neighborhoods were, were were quite small literally i mean it was like a block to block uh, tribal situation. And so there were probably, I would say, 15 or 20 regulars, you know, that were the hangout crew uh, just on the, the two or three streets um, that were adjacent to one another where I grew up in. You know, that was the good thing. The bad thing was, was like I said, the racism and the alcoholism and the violence. Uh, the violence was just absolutely terrible because there was just like block to block tribal situations i know it sounds crazy but uh you would literally have even within the white community uh people who were maybe of a just a slightly different socioeconomic class or a slightly different um cultural makeup maybe more irish or more italian or more or german uh just fighting with each other and i mean like Brutal fights, no guns, thank God, but, you know, knives, chains, baseball bats and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a pretty crazy period of time from 13 until about 17. And unfortunately for me, I met a woman who lived on the opposite side of Brooklyn in a completely Italian conclave uh, called Canarsie. I know where these places are. That's, uh, you know, it's like taking a trip down memory lane because I remember Prospect Park and Canarsie. I mean, yeah, know. Canarsie is yeah. out near the the JFK airport. And uh, yeah. And so to date her, I'd take a two hour bus ride and she hated her neighborhood. So we weren't hanging out in Canarsie. And thank God for her. She introduced me to Manhattan. And I know it sounds crazy. Like I lived in Brooklyn and, I, and like Manhattan is like a, you know, a 15, 20 minute subway ride from where I live. But it's the city. But, it's the city. Yeah. Working class, you know, undereducated Brooklynites. Eh, they had no use for Manhattan. Like, why? Really? Like, what, what did you, which, yeah. I said I escaped to there every time I was able. Amazingly, for very strict Polish Catholic parents, my my parents had... Had no qualms with me getting on the subway and going into, uh, in, well, we didn't call it Manhattan, we called it, called it into the city. 
And fortunately, I had relatives that also lived there. It was um, it was an escape hatch, a permissible escape hatch, I guess. Oh, we sorry. would never go. We would never go to Manhattan. My family never went there. I remember later on in the in years when my father died when I was thirty, but having conversations with him, you know, in my twenties, you know, saying to him, you know, like, why don't you go on a vacation to, you know, to Italy or somewhere, you know, like get out, get out of the country. And he'd say, you know, literally he'd say to me, what do I need to go to Italy for? If I want to go to Italy, I'll just go to little Italy in Manhattan. It's enough. It's enough. I'll get the whole Italian experience over there. Why do I need to go to China? I'll go to Chinatown. So yeah, it was, I think a lot of it was just, you know, a fear of the unknown. My parents, the, the furthest they ever went anywhere was Las Vegas. So that was, you know, that was the uh, the the experience in Brooklyn. Plus, you know, I, I went to an all-boys Catholic elementary school and an all-boys uh, Catholic high school. And people, you know, say to me, like, you know, what what was that like? You know, were you abused? Were you, um, yeah, were you abused? I mean, that's that's basically the, the you know the main question for anybody that went to any kind of Catholic educational institution. And I was never abused sexually. Everybody was abused physically. They were just crazy with their with their you know capital punishment uh, tactics and techniques to keep everybody in line. But you know, in a word. You know, what was the experience of, of an all-Catholic elementary and high school education? I, I simply say the horror. That is a good takeaway. I, I too, went through, uh, uh, let's say, uh, kindergarten through eight and then four years of um, Catholic nunnery. Well, I guess we evolved, and through many years of therapy, we get through it. Did you have the Jesuits? No, I didn't have the Jesuits. That would have been easier. Um, <laughs> they're a little bit more reasonable, yeah. They're more intellectual. Yeah. Than, no, I had the Irish Christian brothers uh, in high school. They were lunatic. In elementary school, from grade four to grade eight, grade eight, I had another tribe that were called the Severian brothers. It started with an X. You you made it through uh, eight years elementary, four years of high school, and then what was the next step for you? Well, you know, because I was the only one to ever graduate high school, and and I did that, you know, just barely. There was never any talk about college or university. I mean, the, the holy grail in Brooklyn at that time was uh, getting a city job, right? So whether you became a policeman, fireman, sanitation worker, transit worker, you know, some something where you had a, quote unquote, a career, you know, where you had to work 20, 25 years, uh, you would start right out of high school. You know, you could look at uh, retiring uh, with your pension at the age of 40. And then, you know, you would moonlight as a bartender or something, right? To make extra money on top of your pension. The great American uh, way. Was, yeah, yeah. That was that was the goal, right? Yeah. So, but it wasn't for me. I mean, thank God I had, and I do have to credit my my parents for this. I had an interest and a, and a talent for, for playing percussion uh, and drums in particular. So, Back at the age of six or seven, my father was a, a grocery clerk in a, in a small supermarket chain. That was his his main job. My mother didn't work until um, later in my teen years. Yeah, my father, every Friday, he would bring home groceries, and uh, and there would always be something other than groceries in the box. And, you know, like some something special, something unusual. And sometimes it was a big thing, like he brought home a kitten once. 
And then one Friday, he brought brought home a pair of drumsticks and announced to me that I was I was going to join the local American Legion marching band, and which I did. And that was the beginning of my, you know, my participation in music carried on, you know, so I played in this marching band for about six years. I learned all of the rudiments and the foundations of, of, of playing percussion. And then when I turned 12, I think it was my grandparents bought me a drum kit for my 12th birthday. And then I started playing, you know, with local bands in the neighborhood, right? You, you know, you would call garage bands. And, you know, I did that all the way until my early 20s. Did you play? So that was, did you that guys was, get gigs yeah. and play like high school dances or proms or was it just yeah. for fun? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody was everybody was dreaming about you know getting into a band where you could get some paid gigs as well as you know the big dream was that you would actually be touring somewhere or opening right? for the Beatles or opening for <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, what were the, what were some of the names of your bands? Oh my God! So the first band, <laughs> first band, we called the Incredible Dusseldorf Band of Austria. Now, why? I think the guitar player had Austrian roots or something. You know the um papa melody. Yes. So we would always start off our our gigs with this. Melody. We were a quartet, right? So uh, two guitars, bass, and drums. And inevitably, we would get booed immediately. Really? <laughs> Tough crowd. Tough People crowd. Would be like, huh? You know, they thought they were coming to listen to a rock and roll band. Right. And, and all of a sudden, they're getting this, like, umpapa music. And, uh, but it was, just the, it was just the joke, you know, right? From there, we would break into a Jefferson Airplane song or a Led Zeppelin song or a Hendrix tune. And then, of course, people went crazy, right? And they got, they got the joke. Other bands, uh, there was a band I remember when I, when I kind of left the neighborhood. And this was, I think I was 18 at this time, 18, maybe 19. I was offered a position in a band that actually was touring out of Brooklyn. And that band was called Nickel. And they were older guys. I remember the, the, the lead singer. The lead singer seemed to me to be like 50 years old. I mean, he just looked ragged. He looked like, uh, you know, Keith Richards at, <laughs> at 40 or 50. That was, that, was a very, that was a very good band. I mean, it was, it was a cover band for the most part, but some original tunes. And that band maybe lasted about a year. The craziest thing was we played upstate New York, and I can't remember the town that we played in. It was probably an hour outside of New York City. And the guitarist's girlfriend was traveling with us. And she was sitting in a, in the, at a cafe table right near the front of the stage. And during the set, some guy that was in the bar sat down with her and started talking to her and, you know, brought his beer over. And, and I could see that the guitar player in our band was getting more and more incensed seeing this stranger talking to his girlfriend and it got to a point that in the middle of a song he he jumped off the, took off his guitar jumped off the stage and started beating the crap out of this guy at the table little did he know that this guy had tons of friends in this bar and they started attacking the entire band 
fortunately for me, I was in the back of the stage, so I just ran out the back door. Were any of the instruments ruined in the in the melee? Oh yeah, yeah. My drum set was all over the place. Oh jeez. The owner of the club, we had we were supposed to be there, I think, for like two weekends, and it was the first night, so we got canceled. And uh, yeah, so that was there were lots there were lots of crazy experiences over the years of, of playing in different bands. We never got to Las Vegas, but you enjoyed the ride along the way, and it brought you to the next level. The thing about playing in bands at that time, so we're talking from you know 1970-71 right up until about 74 or so yeah 74 maybe early 75 this was a period of time when i was kind of on the run but uh living off the grid so to speak there wasn't much of a grid but i'm a vietnam war draft dodger wait a minute i would prefer to say conscientious objector yeah, yeah, I was a conscientious objector for absolutely, sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Not for religious. Not for no, religious no, reasons. for moral reasons, for your own reasons. I, I, I really, I'm not trying to be argumentative, but when people say that, I just feel like it's such a, a bad connotation for people that were very brave to stand up for what they believed and object to serving in something they could not get their head wrapped around. Yeah, I mean, for sure. You know, the draft dodger term was just something that was like a local colloquialism in Brooklyn, right? We did have one guy when I was a teenager. Most of my friends, when I moved into that new neighborhood that I mentioned earlier, they were a couple of years older than me. And so one of them actually went to Vietnam. And boy, when he came back, he was totally different. I mean, Mm. he had PTSD. He was so violent uh, when he came back. And that definitely had an influence on my decision. My father actually did not protest my decision. My father was a Marine in World War II in the, uh, in the Pacific Front. And when I told him that I wasn't going to go, there was no objection. That's there was fabulous. Really no conversa- yeah, there That's was no incredible. conversation about yeah. it. That's good. I learned later on that, because my father never talked about his experience in the war, but he did tell me just one story that he was in a group of soldiers that went into Nagasaki after the atomic bomb was was dropped there. And I think that definitely uh, changed his whole mindset about war and patriotism and, and, uh, and the casualties and violence of war. Some military representative came to my family's home looking for me shortly after I didn't show up for my physical. The folklore, family folklore is that my father greeted them at the door They said, we're looking for your son. Where is he? Have you seen him? And my father said, no, you know, I haven't seen him lately, but if you do see him, tell him I said hello. Touche, Pop, touche, touche. That's that's, uh, very brave to have that support from that generation. And we'll be back with more of Something to Talk About and Mr. Glenn Hilke right after this. Waves. 
Something to Talk About is a series on everyday people and giving a voice into their lives. This series is dedicated to James David Withers, friend, mentor, author, and poet. And also to Shirley Eckhart, composer of our theme song, singer-songwriter, and namesake of our program, Something to Talk About. And we're back with more of Something to Talk About with today's guest, Glenn Hilke. Yeah, and you know, I wasn't living at home. Uh, I moved I moved out of my, my family's home when I, right after high school, I was 17. I got an apartment uh, not too far from the neighborhood. Yeah, I was out on my own and independent at that point in time. And the reason I got drafted was I, I dropped out of Brooklyn College uh, after my first semester because I got a gig with a band. And once I left that, uh, the protection of being in post-secondary education, you were then uh, available for the draft. And that was the first year that the, that the government did the uh, draft lottery. So they, you know, they threw out 365 ping pong balls with dates on them in a big like bingo basket. And, you know, the first 215 birth dates that came out that year got noticed to show up for uh, draft physicals. And my birthday came up as number 40. So my letter came, my letter came early on, shortly after they did the uh, draft lottery. Luck of the draw. Yeah. So, I remember telling my friends, <laughs> I remember telling my friends that I got this letter saying I had to show up at Fort Hamilton for my physical at 5 a.m. And I said to them, 5 a.m.? I said, we, got, we, don't even go, we don't go to bed before 4 o'clock or 4.30. No way I'm going there for a physical at 5 a.m. Did you have any repercussion as a result of that? Or I guess in time, though, I know by the time my brother was old enough for the uh, draft or the lottery, as they called it, they had, they had stopped that. Uh, I, I don't remember what point in the war it was. I did all I could to influence him to, if his number was called, that we take a trip to Canada. Fortunately, that uh, that number was never called. Going to Canada, going to Canada, like I said, like growing up in that, in that socioeconomic, very insulated Brooklyn culture, neighborhood culture environment, Canada was not even like in our consciousness. It wasn't, Glenn, until Pierre Trudeau made it a refuge and welcomed those people that did want to be conscientiously objecting to yeah, the war. That's right. So yeah. that was my first impression of Canada, because you're right, we weren't raised with with any information about Canada. As far as I was concerned, it was just this other country. We didn't even know where it was, or it was on top of the US. Uh, and that was the extent of it. We knew nothing about the history, nothing about our neighbor, nothing no. good, nothing bad, just nothing. No, literally, any, any international history or geography that we were taught in elementary or high school was always connected to the, you know, the Revolutionary War. So it was about England, right? right? and gaining independence from England. So right. Canada was a part of that. So as you journeyed out of Brooklyn and along the way, now you are uh, a musician. Where did that take you from that point? So it was, I had a, I had a bad ending with a band in 74 and didn't really know what I wanted to do. Actually, my, my drum set got stolen. And I reached out to a, a childhood friend that I hadn't seen in a while. And he was living in New Jersey. And he said to me, you know, why don't you come hang out here for a while? And so this was this was 
the beginning of my departure from New York City. And so he lived uh, somewhere near Morristown, New Jersey. And I went there and uh, basically, you know, couch surfing, which I had been doing anyway during those years of being a conscientious objector and got a job actually working at the the National uh, Seeing Eye Dog Foundation. That's quite rural around there, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I got this gig cleaning dog kennels. You're getting yeah. a little further south. How long did you stay in, in Morristown in New Jersey? Uh, not very long. I had, right around that time while I was living there, my only first cousin, my mother's sister's son, was getting married in a small, very, very small town in southern Georgia, Valdosta, Georgia. Uh, the family decided to uh, drive down there. And so we got into the family station wagon, I think it was, or a rented one. And we drove down from New York to Valdosta, Georgia. About 18 hours wedding. or 20 hours. Yeah. yeah. And at the wedding, I got a crush on the bridesmaid. And I was kind of, you know, free and easy in back then in Morristown, New Jersey. My musical career was on hold. I didn't quite know what the hell I was going to do in life. And so, you know, a few love letters back and forth, a few phone calls. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's a state college in Valdosta. Maybe I'll go back to school I think school it's Valdosta now. State, isn't it? Valdosta State College. Yeah. Maybe I'll go back to school because... Uh, we just we just got total immunity as conscientious objectors, so we could come out of the out of the shadows. Would that have been during the era of Jimmy Carter? No, that was Gerald Ford. Oh, Gerald Ford. Oh, yeah. I didn't yeah. realize he was that progressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't either. Um, well, I mean, he wasn't that progressive. I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gave total immunity to Nixon. Yeah, so. I made the trek down to Valdosta, Georgia, to be with my new girlfriend and to enroll in the physical education program at Valdosta State College. And oh my God, did I not realize what I was getting into in terms of what I thought about physical education and what Valdosta State College thought about physical education. So. Want to hear a crazy story? Yes. And when we come back, we'll have more along the turnpike of Glenn Hilke's life's journey after this message. This is Island Ways, the voice of Prince Edward Island. Whether you're near or far, take us along with you. And download the free app and bring us along on Podbean and Spotify, Island Waves. Be sure to tune in to Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. You're listening to Something to Talk About on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward back 
with more of Something to Talk About and today's guest, Glenn Hilke. And Glenn, when we last left off, you were about to take us on a funny anecdotal story of your journey into the physical education program at Valdosta State, Georgia, having been a tree that grew up in Brooklyn. Tell us about that. So it's registration day for courses, right? And so I go into the gymnasium, you know, all the different tables of the different departments are set up with the department instructors behind the tables. And so I go in with a clear idea about what I want to register for. So I go in and I say, hi, I'd like to register for uh, PE, you know, physical education, uh, 103. And the guy says to me in that Valdostan Southern drawl, uh, that's the modern dance class, and that's just for the girls. And I was like, well, that's the one I want to take. Well, no, um, you can't take that one, uh, but you can take the wrestling class. That's for the boys. And I'm thinking to myself, the last thing I want to do is like wrestle with guys at 8 o'clock in the morning. Like, I, I, I want to take a modern dance class. I had taken modern dance classes in New York City on and off during this conscientious objective period. I really liked dance and movement. I never, you know, joined a company or aspired to be, but I just loved the idea of the expression. Yeah, the expression. Yeah, and the freedom, yeah. And so I just like said to this guy, like, I don't want to take wrestling. I want to take modern dance class. And then they said to me, Well, you'll have to speak to the head of the department about that. I go to see the head the head of the department and I explain to him, you know, that I have, you know, experience with modern dance and I've taken it and so on. And he knows that I'm not from Valdosta or any of the surrounding area. And I think he probably thinks at some point that maybe this guy is sent down by some civil rights organization. (laughs) And so he says to me, you want to take modern dance? Fine. Ticked it off. You got modern dance. And so I show up for my first modern dance course. So you have, you got to get the image of this. It's in the gymnasium. Modern dance is happening up on the stage. There's no curtain. The modern dance class is in full view of what's down below, which is the rest of the gymnasium where the guys are wrestling. So as dance is going on, so is wrestling. And I have to go to the side door of the stage to get in, up to get onto the stage. And I knock on the door because the door is locked. And this woman, the instructor, comes over and there's a little window in the door where we can see each other. And she's waving her finger at me, telling me, no, she's not going to let me in. She knows I'm registered, but she's not going to let me in. And so I knock a couple more times, and finally she lets me in. And the first thing she says to me, and I didn't realize at the time what she was talking to, she said to me, I'm going to let you in. I'm not happy that you're part of this class, but I can't wait for the second half of the semester when we do women's gymnastics. And I didn't think twice about that. I was just happy to get into the class, you know, and... I was in there, you know, wearing my white tights and and so on. The guy, the wrestling guys were a bit distracted from wrestling, seeing me up there. The second half of the semester, women's gymnastics, uh, there's a reason why men don't do the uneven parallel bars. Well, yes. Okay. Yeah. Suffice it's to hard say. on your, it's hard on the groin area. Yes. And so that's what you, that's what she was referring that's to. That's what she was referring to. Yeah. So did you do it? Did you do the oh, gymnastics? Yeah, I had to do it to pass the course. And so, you know, the physical education vision, you know, quickly dissolved. And thank God it did. And, and that's where my 
the beginning of my theater life began down in Valdosta, Georgia. Did they have a drama department there and you got involved with theater? They had a drama department that at the time was led by a man named Del Hamilton, who you probably remember. Yeah. From Seven Stages Theater yes, Company. Yes, yes, yes. Del Hamilton was the chair of the drama department and Del was very progressive theater academic and professor and was very interested in contemporary theater. And so I didn't meet Dell directly. What happened was in my interest of physical education and wanting to be a part of the community in Valdosta, I volunteered to coach an elementary school level basketball team. And I went to a practice, I showed up at the gym, a community gym one night for practice and it was raining out terribly. And Nobody was showing up for the practice because I guess they just realized it's, you know, it's just the weather's too bad to do anything. So parents kept all the kids home. And I'm just hanging out, waiting to see if somebody's going to show up. When all of a sudden I hear this voice say to me in, a, in an accent that I completely recognized instantaneously, an accent from Brooklyn, New York. And basically he said to me something like, uh, hey, what are you, you know, Hey, uh, what you doing here? Uh, who are you? And I like looked at this guy, and his name was Jeff Lynn. And I said, are you from Brooklyn? And he said, yeah, I'm from Brooklyn. I said, what, what are you doing here? He said, oh, I'm in the theater department. I said, really? Okay. And so we started talking. And then he said to me, uh, you know, we're doing senior level student auditions tomorrow for one act plays why don't you come and audition to see if you can get a part in one of the student plays that, are, that we're all doing? I don't know if he was going to be directing one or not. And so I go, well, all right, fine, I'll go. And I went and I auditioned and I got a part. The part I got was in a one-act Sam Shepard play called Cowboys Number 2, I believe it was. And I really enjoyed it. It was a, a two-person play. And afterwards, after the rehearsal period, there was a performance before the faculty as well as the student body. And afterwards, the um, Dell came up to me and said to me, uh, would you be interested to audition in one of our main stage productions? And I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, honestly, Virginia, I had no background in theater for two reasons. One was growing up in racially discriminatory Brooklyn, the last thing you wanted to do as a high school student was join the drama department. Especially if you were a guy. Yeah, your yeah. friends would definitely say that you were, you know, a homosexual. Well, yeah, it wasn't just the racial prejudice. It was it was anything, really, yeah. that was not Gender within identity. the yeah. cookie cutter yeah. form. Right. Yeah. Any, anything that was outside, you know, the tribal customs. Uh, was frowned upon. And particularly theater, and particularly theater for men. Yeah, yeah, right. And so the only the only contact I had with theater, which was a great one, was that girlfriend from Canarsie took me to see Hair, the original uh -huh. production on Broadway. I saw the original as well. Yep, me too, me too. And that was wild. It you was know? wild. That was, that was a wild production. It was profound. And yeah, and, and in one way or another, it stuck with me. Me too. And so when I had this opportunity to do theater, um, I don't want to say it came naturally, but I certainly was open to it. 
And so, yeah, so the, so Dell says to me, you know, you want to audition for this main stage production? And I was like, oh, okay, what is it? He said, well, we're doing Othello. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I had no idea about Shakespeare, nothing. Maybe I'd heard, you know, the words Romeo and Juliet a few times in my life. Well, you would have had a pass through it in high school somewhere. You would have heard something about it. So, yeah. 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 And, but never read a play. I went to the local Feldasta College library and found, you know, an old uh, recording of Othello on, al on an album. It was probably done by the great, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it, the main role was done by Laurence Olivier. And I listened to the whole album, right? I listened to the accents and, and then I came back to meet Dell. He gave me a copy of Othello to read. And I read it. And then I came back to see him a few days later with an appointment I had. And he said to me, so, uh, so what do you think? <laughs> and I literally said to him, yeah, okay, I'll do it. No problem. And he looked at me and he's like, no, 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 no. You have to audition. I mean, what did you think of the play? I was like, oh, yeah, it was great. Great story. Yeah, fun. I listened to the record, too. It was great. So I had no idea the process, right, of auditioning, what part. I mean, I don't know if I thought I was going to play Othello <laughs> or, or what. But anyway, I got the part and I, I was uh, I played uh, the role of Cassio in Othello. And so, yeah, that was the beginning of the theater career. That's a giant step. I mean, yeah, yeah, that really put you on the path. And, you know, the greatest thing about it was was the community of student actors and Dell was a part of that community you know who's kind of a patriarch in it but some of the other members of the original theatrical outfit were all in that program at the time david head was in that program elise witt was in that program joe johnson was in the program so these were all people who were in the original theatrical outfit so you knew them from school yeah right and so the journey from Valdosta to Atlanta was not a direct one. So what happened was, Dell said to me after I was in two or three productions there, and I lived in Valdosta just about a year and a half, Dell said to me, you have a lot of talent, and I think this program is not enough for you. And I've just heard about a new program that's opening up at NYU called the Experimental Theater Wing, where you'll have contact with you know, the avant-garde community in New York and a much more intense, you know, training program at NYU. And so that's where I wound up. And we'll be back with more of Something to Talk About right after this message. This is Island Waves. The voice of Prince Edward Island. Tune in to Inside the 46th Parallel here on Island Waves. And we're back with our guest, Glenn Hilke, taking us back up the East Coast, up the New Jersey Turnpike, all the way to school in the Big Apple. And that was a crazy story as well. All NYU. And I speak to the man who started the program, Ron Argelander. This is in August of 1975. And I said to him, I heard about your program. I'm interested to, to be in it. And he said, well, that's very nice. He said, but, you know, we start next month and we've already, you know, gone through our applications and made our decisions. So you can apply for the program 
next year. And I was like, next year? <laughs> like, you know, I, I hear about this program and, you know, just saying this is where you should go. I have my, my, my eyes set on going to this program. So I said to him, well, can I even get, get an interview with you? Like, do I have to wait until next year? And he said, well, I can meet you. That's not a problem. Uh, but, you know, for you to get into this program that's starting, you know, next month, uh, that's not possible. So I said, well, you'll give me an interview. Yes, I'll give you an interview. So th this, I, this is a Friday afternoon. I speak to him and he says, you know, he's going to give me an interview at two o'clock on Monday afternoon, the following Monday at NYU. I pack a bag. I march over to I-85 and stick my thumb out on the road. I hitchhike all weekend to get to NYU. I'm, I'm just on the other side of the Lincoln Tunnel in New Jersey, and it's probably about one o'clock in the afternoon on Monday, and that's the worst place you could be standing trying to get a ride into Manhattan. Somebody picks me up. I make it to my interview on time. I meet Ron Argelander, and in the process of the conversation, he understands that I've just been hitchhiking all weekend to make it to this interview from Southern Georgia. And he says to me, wow, you must really be like interested in this program, like getting into this program. And, I, and you know, I'm just like all naive. And I'm like, yeah, I really want to be in this program. I really think this would be the great thing for me to do. And he lets me in. And I started, you know, I started in, in the following month. Yeah. So fortunately, all the stars were converging at the right time to find a place to go from Valdosta, which was to NYU. I mean, it wasn't like that same weekend that I hitchhiked up there, but I did have to cut my ties with her. I wound up couch surfing with some of my theater department, drama department friends at Valdosta for a while. But that's part and parcel of being in theater though, Glenn, isn't it? And starting out, I mean, isn't that the success story on the way? How so? How so? Well, it's, you know, you uh, are the artist, you're you're couch surfing, you know, you're you're working your way up uh, I-85, you know, it just seems to all fall into uh, a nice narrative there. Yeah, yeah. I, and, it, you know, when you think of it, that, you know, at the time when we're going through things, I think we, we suffer through the adversity, we don't think we're going to make it. And when you look back, as you're telling me this in retrospect, I'm thinking, what a remarkable journey, because I know where you've landed. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah, so what happened was the... Um connection that I had to Valdosta with Del Hamilton and, and some of the other original theatrical outfit members continued mostly through letter writing. You know, they were particularly interested in the training that I was getting. There was the, the, the beginning conversations of starting a theater company, uh, not in Valdosta, because I think Del Hamilton was got fired or he had had enough of Valdosta and realized that he had kind of outgrown the community and the department but I think they did not look too favorably upon his contemporary and avant-garde tendencies. To be honest with you, I'm shocked they even had a drama department. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of conversation back and forth from Valdosta to New York about starting a theater company. And I wasn't, it wasn't clear for me that I wanted to do that until I had a moment where I had gone to visit Elise Witt in North Carolina while I was still studying at NYU, she introduced me to a playwright that was living in North Carolina. And I can't remember her name right now, but she lived in Atlanta as well. And if I can remember during our conversation, I'll go back to it. I remember sitting on, on this woman's porch, 
she was all dressed in black. She was like, uh, she looked like Morticia Adams from the Adams family. And she was telling me stories about doing playwriting workshops in state prisons in North Carolina. And I was fascinated by the stories that she was telling me. I went back to New York, continued my training, and the training at NYU was just incredible. I mean, I was, I was being trained by what was, at that time, the cream of the crop of the avant-garde community in New York City. I mean, we're talking about theater companies like the Performance Group, the Wooster Group, Mabu Mines, Bread and Puppet Theater, Meredith Monk, Robert Wilson, Ping Chong, Iowa Theater Lab, like all of these, I mean, some of them still running, like Wooster Group and Mabu Mines and Bread and Puppet Theater, obviously, but, you know, just incredible roster of, of talent and, and, and theater performance luminaries. And, you know, the, there was a, a constant message, not from all of them, but, but enough of them that were saying to us, to students, um, you know, question everything that we are teaching you. I mean, we could see that they were questioning everything about, you know, traditional theater and, uh, and performance, especially Broadway. I mean, Broadway was like the devil to them. Uh, everything from plush seats and lighting and makeup and, you know, grandiose budgets for costumes and whatever. That was completely... Uh, 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 the avant-garde community was protesting that and performing in church basements and garages and so on, lofts. And so this question everything uh, mentality that was instilled in us led me to a question that I had one day, which was, if we don't do theater for the general public, then how do you do theater? Where do you do theater? Who do you do it with? And that question came from me kind of comparing, you know, the Broadway model to the, the model that I'm being trained in and realizing that there was this one common denominator. And that was asking the general public, as well as the media, right, for reviews, but asking the general public to come to you as opposed to you going somewhere. And so that was the end of it. I realized like, okay. And I think that conversation that I had with that woman in North Carolina about her work in the prisons jettisoned me out of the NYU program and the letters going back and forth with the Valdosta group. We decided that we were going to try something in Atlanta. And Atlanta was not the first choice, actually. In these letters going back and forth about where do we start a theater company, if not in New York, right, which is, you know, considered as, as to be the you know, the, the hub of theater in the United States, the center of the universe Absolutely. for theater. Where do we do? So there was conversations about Jacksonville, Florida, Phoenix, Arizona, somewhere in Texas, maybe San Antonio. I can't remember. There was, there was you know, different conversations, I think, with different people that might have had some kind of knowledge or connections to those communities. We decided on Atlanta. And so I left NYU. What was the swaying moment that pivoted you all to Atlanta as opposed to, say, Phoenix? I think it was probably that the folks that were involved in the original theatrical outfit all had the Georgia experience, had laid down some Georgia roots. They might have known somebody in Atlanta. There was a familiarity. Uh, I, I, think it was, I yeah. think it was too much of an adventure for everybody to think about uprooting to another state another you know part of the country and i think i think maybe there was an affordability at that time yeah yeah i don't think so this, atlanta had even hit the million 
million uh, population yeah. mark. Yeah. So it was, right. in, was it was this niche. was late seventy six. Yeah. This was late seventy six, and we all came together in early seventy seven to start the company. So where did, where actually was the company formed and located? So we lived all together in a house. Well, not all of us. I was I was the only one in the company that at the time of of my arrival in Atlanta, I was married. Going back maybe yeah to the summer of 76, prior to knowing that Atlanta was going to be a thing, I had auditioned for a um, summer internship at the New Jersey Shakespeare Festival. I got an internship there, and it was a wild experience, crazy experience. But I met my first wife, Marianne Fraulo there. Marianne was, was one of the original theatrical outfit members as well. We got married in the spring of 1977. At that time, Marianne's vision of, of working in the theater was more New York-centered and a bit more commercial-centered than my vision of being in theater at the time. And it's two very young, inspired, energetic young people wanting to work in theater, we had kind of shook hands on this model that we were going to have as a married couple that she would move to New York. She was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and we got married in Washington, D.C. That she would move to New York and pursue her career. I would move to Atlanta and pursue the company, and we would get together as often as we could. And that was that was going to be our our kind of marriage contract. But it didn't happen. I think the thought of us being separated was not clear enough and you know it was too there was too much unknown about that because you know we were in love and wanted to be together and she saw the theatrical outfit as something more concrete than what she was going to get into going into new york right which was just going to auditions and hoping for the best was she more the broadway minded whereas you were the the opposite uh, was she yeah more, but, yeah. yeah i wouldn't say broadway but she was more she was more new york centered more larger urban more theater developed than atlanta uh, at the time yeah but she decided to to give the theatrical outfit a try but she didn't want to live in the commune that was the theatrical outfit house and where was that located that was located, it was not too far from Little Five Points. Well, uh, would it have been Inman Park? It was not too far from Ponce de Leon either. The Little Five Points, yeah. Inman Park, uh, Virginia Highlands, very artistic. and very, Yeah, it was yeah. more in that, it was more closely, I think it was right in between Little Five Points and Virginia Highlands. Right. Yeah, remember Manuel's Tavern? Oh, I do. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so it was not too far from Manuel's. Yeah. I mean, the theatrical outfit's original... Um, theater space was on St. Charles Avenue down the alley there. So, yeah, so we could, we walked from our, from that communal house uh, to our, our theater space. Yeah. And that was, that was mid to late seventies. That was 1977. Yeah. By the spring of 1977, everybody had arrived. So when I say everybody had arrived, yeah, the whole cohort from Valdosta was there. Dell, David Head, Elise Witt, Joe Johnston, Jeff. Jeff came down and joined the company. And then we met Celeste Miller, who was already there. And she had her own company called the Gypsy Rainbow Dance Theater. And so in the conversations that we had with Celeste Miller, we saw a common vision for exploring alternative and experimental theater and performance that included movement and dance. 
and the two companies merged, became the theatrical outfit and Gypsy Rainbow Dance Theater Company. And we'll be back with more of Something to Talk About with our guest, Glenn Hilke, right after this. This is Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. You can now take us along with you on Podbean, Spotify, Anchor, and Facebook. Download the free apps and take us along with you every place you go. Listen to us on your phone, your tablets, your watches, your devices, your earpods, or whatever your listening pleasure is. This way you can bring us along with you anytime, day or night, and hear all your favorite shows right here on the Island Waves channel. Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island, with your favorite programs such as Night Moves, Storytime with Nana Anna, Inside the 46th Parallel, The Book Nook, Country Roads, Morning Music, Mid-Morning Musical Melange, Something to Talk About, Jazz Flavors, Polkas and Pudokies, Classical Gas, and much more to come. Tune in to Island Waves for all your favorite programming and take us along with you wherever you go. You can follow us on Podbean, Facebook, Spotify, and Anchor and take us along with you wherever you journey so we can go together. So be sure to tune in and follow Ivan Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. And we're back with more of something to talk about in today's guest, author, playwright, director, and artist, Glenn Hilke. 
Now, around that time, between like 77, 78, wasn't that the time that Swim at Your Own Risk came into uh, some sort of vision for you? Yeah, I would say in, in probably in, in late 78 or early 79. So I met Barbara Covington in, at a theatrical outfit, a theater improv workshop. So the outfit, besides doing performances, also held classes at times. And so different members of the company uh, initiated workshops or classes. And I initiated one, a theater improv class. And at that point, the theatrical outfit was already beginning to splinter for various reasons. Some of them interpersonal, some of them philosophical. Theatrical outfit was becoming more of an independent production company where the original members had the freedom to um, create their own projects, produce their own projects and performances, and all under the name of the theatrical outfit. And so, yeah, Barbara and I, our first project together was a performance piece called Night Slopes Never End. And it was uh, just she and I in the work. And a lot of it was about the uh, experience of being on death row in Georgia, but also about the concept of being imprisoned on every level from the literal level of being imprisoned to self-imprisonment you know in your own mind so to speak as to you know what you would allow yourself to think or do or try based on the you know the pressures of society and yeah so that was the first performance that we did together and out of that grew the swim at your own risk concept yeah that was uh, that was quite a performance, and as you mentioned uh, to me in a conversation, it was amazing that we took over the entire Piedmont Park Arts Festival. I think not once but twice, plus the rehearsals. I remember we'd get together at I think we'd meet at six in the evening and work, and you had everything choreographed where we had to sit there. We were like cogs in a machine, and we were up on top of I think was it the pool area or I just remember it was the stone building or something and we would have to bang on the rails to a certain beat yeah yeah you're bringing back lots of memories for me virginia and i really appreciate that that was a, a huge undertaking i don't know how the hell we got the city of atlanta and the piedmont park administration to agree to it but i guess it was just a time where there was a lot less maybe bureaucracy a lot more openness to you know different ideas and you know we weren't demanding of the city of Atlanta for anything in terms of technical support. You know, we were trying to figure out the whole thing ourselves. Right. But we had incredible co cooperation, not only in uh, overtaking the building, but <laughs> using the lake, uh, having those boats at the end where we crossed over as archetypes of certain uh, sectors of people and, and their professions. And there were a lot of people involved with that. Yeah, there were. And, and, Part of the reason for that was as the theatrical outfit began to um, come apart, the good, the good thing about that is that we, we started looking outside our own community for other artists um, to collaborate with. And so Barbara was one of those other artists, but she had a natural talent for creative thinking and, um, and performance ideas. And broad-minded visions. That, yeah. were, that were very cohesive to yours. So it was, yeah. it was a nice collaboration. Very, she also had a very strong uh, feminist perspective about the world. And she brought that to it as well. I mean, the fact that we use the lake 
that was something that Barbara brought to the table. And, and that was also from, um, you know, her thoughts and feelings about the metaphor of the lake using the water from a feminist perspective. The African drum ensemble that came from my side of things, because as a percussionist, I was also looking, you know, to continue to stay in touch with that. I found the kind of serendipity, the African uh, dance ensemble. I, I think it was through the Neighborhood Arts Center. It was, yes. And King Farouk Brima, who was the director of that program, was a great man and, and very friendly and, and open to bringing African culture uh, to the general public in Atlanta. So any opportunity uh, to bring his drummers and dancers uh, into the spotlight, he, he, he was very happy to participate in. Yeah, and then the Forest Avenue Consortium at the old school there, that was very vibrant at the time as well. You know, there were so many artists that had studios in there. So, and I think you and I talked about this recently, the lighting for the Swim at Your Own Risk piece was done by Jerry Brookshire. And Jerry Brookshire loved to work with fluorescent lights and all sorts of kind of pedestrian lighting that, that we come into contact with in a city for, you know, safety reasons for orderly city living. And he brought a lot of that into our performance environment. My only regret is I wish somebody would have, I, I, we didn't really have videotape back then, I don't think, and we certainly didn't have cell phones, but I wish we could have captured that in some way to memorialize that production. I, it, you know, it's, uh, as we were speaking about it, it's all coming back and it's clearly in my mind, but, and then probably in your mind, but it stops with us, eh? Well, I'll let you know fairly soon if there is a, a tape. Ah. I have a box of videos that I haven't looked at in decades uh, sitting in my basement in Atlanta, from Atlanta, uh, work. And there was a an artistic duo, uh, Tony Viscardi and Alan Haas, who opened up a gallery on, I would say, on 10th Street. Yeah, 10th Street, right near the corner of Peachtree. And the gallery was called, and it was based on the address of the building and the fact that before they leased the building was a shoe repair business and so they called this gallery one two three shoe repair and tony and alan especially tony was highly involved in video and i would i would call upon tony when i was doing things to uh to assist us to to get some documentation so i'll i'll, I'll take a look in that box and see if we have well, something from that that'll from that be time. a challenge for you glenn I'd, I'd really welcome knowing if there was something or even seeing just glimpses of it it would be great i was thinking about this recently of getting all those tapes that I have have transferred to a platform that I can view them on. My dear, um, I have had that talk for the last five years with myself and my son, and we keep talking about transferring all that. And, and guess what? Still not done. I too have that box of videotapes. And... Yeah, so I have a friend in town here in Kamloops who runs a, uh, a film and video studio, and I'm sure he has the equipment to do the transfers. That would be great. Yeah, that would be wild. That would be really wild. So circling back, I just have one more question about Swim at Your Own Risk. Did you write that, and and or did you and Barbara collaborate on that together? Yeah, and Barbara and I's collaboration, our writing collaboration, was just crazy. So it was very image-oriented as opposed to text-oriented. Right, there, was, was, there wasn't a script. No, it wasn't. It was all directed. Yeah. Yeah. But I did write, I do have a script for Four Night Slopes Never End. 
I don't know if I have a script for Swim at Your Own Risk, but I'd have to take a look and see if I have something, a document about that. Well, I think what it was, it was more like, a, it was a script, but it was more like a script of suggested movements or um, setting up the structure of what we were going to be doing and maybe an explanation sometimes why we were doing it or what it was you were trying to convey. So that's right. It was, it was, yeah. uh, I think a Everybody, and there were a lot of people in that performance. I mean, when you think about all those people that were on top of the building, there were a lot of people involved with that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and that was, that was imperative because what happened was that, you know, we realized that we were trying to activate a huge physical space. And the only way to do that was to have a ton of performers and to have them spread out and, and have those different parts of that that uh, total space activated at different times in different ways, whether it was through music, lighting, movement, sound, megaphones. Yeah. It was one of the performances that you just really felt, as opposed to sometimes when you don't get that cooperation or people, the enthusiasm from people or even the people wanting to show up, nobody had to be convinced to show up for rehearsals or for the performance. Uh, that's nice to hear. So, And did, do you remember how those rehearsals so to speak were were done um i mean i have i don't have any memory of that whatsoever I, was barbara leading them well you would we would again memory's a little dim there because now we live in the age of uh texts and all that other stuff so how the communications were there uh, or or provided we knew where right. to be. We, I, I, I somehow remember that we would be there at five or six o'clock. And of course, it's summer, so it's bright and light. And maybe that was because it was, you know, at the end of the workday, so to speak, or maybe traffic dying down. As you know, Atlanta is uh, never at a loss for traffic. But we would, or maybe that was when the park said, hey, you guys can come in and take over. But we would be right. there for a couple of hours. I think it just seemed to be a really nice uh, environment. And everybody got along really well. The directions were clear. The, the crossing over on the boat was a big part of it. And it had its challenges, including discussing costuming and how we were going to get out of the, the uh, mechanism uh, of the um, being on top of the building in, in one outfit while we're running and changing into the secondary outfits, running around the lake to get to the other side where the boat's. It was, it was so much fun, and nobody missed a beat. And the boats didn't capsize. And I think we were carrying <laughs> candles. We I think we were carrying either candles or l lanterns. And, yeah, and, that's right. And, yeah. and I know Jim, myself, uh, Barbara, and Barbara Covington. We had a stand. I believe we were standing in the boats. Uh, I wonder where the hell we got the boat from. There were four boats. I don't even know where. I can't remember. They were they were wooden. Not canoes, but just flat bottom boats. And obviously there was somebody that was that was paddling us. And I, I remember we had to work out the logistics of where to stand so it didn't tip and carry this flame. And of course, like I said, you know, running and disrobing into and I think what it was is we just layered that layered up. So as we're running from the building with, you know, from doing the um for lack of a better word, being the cogs in the machine, I think that's what you called it. We were getting into our respective archetypal outfits. I think Barbara was in a majorette costume. <laughs> and there was a big controversy one Saturday morning, I think at your house. I remember being there with Jim Withers and Barbara Covington and yourself. And the big discussion 
I don't know if this will jar your memory. The big discussion was over Barbara wearing, Barbara Covington wearing that majorette costume. <laughs> yeah. I think you didn't want her to wear it. And I think she didn't want to wear it at all. I wanted her to wear it and she didn't no, no, want no, to no. wear it? No, 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 no. I don't think you wanted her to wear it at all. I don't think you wanted her to wear it. I think you wanted her to wear something else. Right. But she was stuck on this majorette costume. And then the... Maybe it was her way to get the majorette costume by saying, well, I don't think I should be wearing it at all. I think I should, you know, take the costume off as I'm going across the lake and appear on the other side, you know, without the costume. So I think maybe that was your caving point. You said, okay, majorette costume stays. Yeah, Barbara, I think Barbara Carraher was the nurse. I think Jim was a wizard and I was the archetypal bride. I still have the veil that Barbara made me. Out of yes, your out of your kitchen curtain. Right. Yes. I've carried that with me. It, every place I've been where I have had anything to do with theater, if it hasn't been in my house, it has been with me. And I tell the story, of wow. course. Yeah. So talk about a trip down memory lane. Yeah, the the idea of Barbara wearing a majorette outfit. I mean, yeah, that's that's that was classic Covington. Yeah. I mean blue with red satin, you know, the the epaulets, the whole nine yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she had incredible capacity to come up with, you know, these crazy images that drove us was always, you know, trying to find something to do we had not seen before in performance. The environmental philosophy of that performance, I think for me, was probably inspired by the bread and puppet festivals that we would go to see as as members of the theatrical outfit every year. And then in 1972, they bought a plot of land in northern Vermont, in Glover, Vermont, a beautiful farm that had, as as part of its landscape, a natural amphitheater. And every summer from 1975 until, I think, 2000, they would do what they called the Bread and Puppet Domestic Resurrection Circus. And it was just this unbelievable experience of medieval contemporary but from the roots of medieval pageantry uh hippie rural tribalism theater and performance um that included circus and puppetry and music and oh my god it was just the best did i hear you say earlier that they're still in existence the bread and puppets still exist today yeah you know, the, I said earlier the the dissolution of the theatrical outfit was a real blessing for me because it it led me to explore other factions, if I could say, of the arts community that I was not aware of because we were so as a as a theater collective, we were just like morning, noon, and night with ourselves, right? Creating, eating, cooking. Yeah, with very little ability to look elsewhere to broaden yeah, your I mean, vision. Looking elsewhere, once in a while, we would go to see, you know, a Kelly's Seed and Feed production. But that was about as much time as we had, you know, to spare because we were so heavily involved in, in training and production. And so once that started to dissolve, I found myself meeting other artists from other disciplines that were connected to other institutions like the Forest Avenue uh, consortium, the Neighborhood Arts Center. One of the biggest life-changing experiences that I had as an artist was when the city, through the Department of Cultural Affairs, brought in the Italian artist and his collaborators, but the Italian artist Michelangelo Pistoletto in 1979. 
and Michelangelo Pistoletto came in to town with uh, three collaborators of his, uh, Enrico Rava, who was a jazz trumpeter, uh, Morton Fellman, who was a contemporary um, classical, why do I say classical, but a contemporary uh, music composer, and then Lionel Gennaro, who was a theater director. I had such a great experience working with those four artists and all the artists that I met as a result of the, that collaboration. And that project was literally called Creative Collaboration. I'm not sure if it if they came in right after Swim at Your Own Risk or before. It was just amazing. I mean, this, this, this artist who I'd never heard of before, but was an internationally acclaimed experimental visual artist in, in sculpture, painting, yeah, comes to Atlanta. And, and basically he says to us that we're all gathered at um, uh, in the main meeting area at the Forest Avenue Consortium. He, I mean, he just simply said, hi, my name is Michelangelo Pistoletto, and these are my artist friends, and we're here to make art with you. So let's have a drink and come and talk to us and let's make projects together. So this brings you on the road, up the corridor, up the uh, eastern seaboard. What was the transition between Atlanta to Montreal? Because that would have been in the early early 80s or yeah. not quite yeah, the mid-80s. So the transition, the transition I knew was coming because when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, some of his aides that were charged with you know, dealing with arts and culture uh, realized that from the Carter years, when a lot of money was put in for community arts, alternative voices in the arts, opposition voices in the arts, that uh, Reagan wanted this undone. He wanted this dismantled, defunded, like ASAP. Well, and he, he, started wa- doing he wanted those voices quieted. Yeah. Extinguished. Yeah. And so that, was, that started happening ASAP. Impacted every level uh, from federal to state to municipal funding. And I just, I just realized that the United States that had been, I don't want to say so good to me at all, but that the United States that I felt like had a lot of room for freedom of expression and opportunity, you know, even if you were living on a level of poverty, was being challenged, like, and just seemed like it was coming to an end. And I, I started thinking, like, I want to go live in another country. And I actually thought about moving to Ghana because of my connections with the African Dance Ensemble in Atlanta. I thought, yeah, I want to get out. I want to live in a different continent, different culture. And and the only one I could think of was Ghana. I hadn't done that much international traveling at that time and never been to Canada. In the summer of 82, I went, you know, once again back to the annual Bread and Puppet Domestic Resurrection Circus. And there I met a woman who was part of a small theater company in rural Quebec in Bay St. Paul. They were performing there as, as many small Quebec theater companies were, especially if they were involved in anything that had to do with puppetry. I had brought a performance, a solo performance, up to the festival as well. And yeah, I just kind of met her in the pine forest. We got talking and, and she said, you know, why don't you come visit us and see what we do? And that's when I realized, when I got there, like, oh my God, not only am I in a different country, but I'm in a, I don't even understand what the hell they're saying. I mean, I mean, she spoke English, but she was a Francophone. 
And all of a sudden I realized, well, I guess I don't have to cross the Atlantic Ocean uh, to have this new country cultural experience. And of course, you know, the love was there. You know, I, I visited them in the summer of the 82 and, and moved to uh, Bay St. Paul in January of 1983. So it didn't take you very long to make that decision then once you knew that's where you needed to be. Yeah, like I said, like I, I had in my mind and heart, I was like, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get out of the United States. You've been listening to Something to Talk About with our guest, Glenn Bilkey. In part two, we'll journey with Glenn all the way up to Canada and talk about his work with The Loop and other social issues and even a run for mayor of Kamloops. I'm Virginia Winter. Please join us again right here on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. Talk About is a Door in the Floor production in association with Winterlude Studios for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island, executive producer and creator Virginia Winter, research contributions by Brittany Williams, Tracy Law, and Helen Balms, audio technical and director assistance Brittany Williams, post-production Winterlude Studios, Prince Edward Island, Master Editing, Virginia Winter. The producers would like to acknowledge and thank all of our participants of our series, Something to Talk About, who generously gave their time to be interviewed and share their lives with us. And to Holland College School of Journalism and Mass Communications, particularly to Brittany Williams and to Lindsay Carroll. Special gratitude of thanks and appreciation to our technical guru and advisor, Dr. Watson Ohms, and to Millie, our loyal canine companion and moral support. Something to Talk About is a Door in the Floor Winterlude Studio production made possible with support from Prince Edward Island Senior Secretariat and the Winter Foundation for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island.